Hey, everybody. Good morning. Please open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're continuing in our 10-year trek through the book of 1 Corinthians. Yeah. <laughs> Ezekiel for three years. Um, already. Starting in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things, and, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air. I punish my body, I enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. So, perhaps, you read this text, and you're thinking, okay, a sports analogy. Self-control, exercise, intentional efforts towards accomplishing a goal. I love Paul, but sometimes these analogies about oxen treading grain and agriculture and farming and milking cows, it's just not where I live, Paul, but a sports analogy. Sports analogy I can get behind. But perhaps you read this text and you're thinking, oh boy, a sports analogy. Perhaps like me, you dread the remembrance of gym class. It was it's kind of like a sucker punch. Literally, I don't think I've ever received more sucker punches than I did in gym class. But but you remember how like gym class was like really fun in elementary school? It's basically like an extension of of recess and it's all like jumping rope and and you get to play on that what the, what was the stuff that the equipment called the metal bars that they brought in like once a year it was like the whittle equipment or something. You know, it's always all fun. It's great. We're in our clothes and all that. And then you get to middle school and you have to like undress with other people and suddenly you're getting treated like, you know, you're, 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 you're just filth by some, you know, gym teacher. It's just like it wasn't a great experience for me. And then high school, thank God, we only had to do it one, one, uh, one year. But regardless, it's funny how, how you read this common, the commentaries on this passage um, and they all just assume that, that, that you know what Paul's getting at, you know, um, I'll admit it. I am a huge fan of the Rocky movies. All seven of them. (laughs) Even though, essentially, they all have the same plot point. Um, You know, Rocky uses strength and conditioning to overcome the odds and blow everyone's expectations. And, you know, Rocky fights Creed, and Rocky fights Creed and wins, and Rocky fights Mr. T, and Rocky fights the Russian guy, and Rocky fights the young guy, and then Rocky fights another young guy and loses, and then Rocky trains Creed's son. It's basically the same plot line over and over again, but it makes you feel good. Of course, in two of the movies, he loses. And those are probably actually the best movies in the franchise because they are about something... Um, more than just Rocky, you know, literally being the bad guy. In the first movie, um, which is by far the best, um, Rocky's he's walking out the night before a match, and he comes home to Adrian, and he tells her that, that he'd been out all night thinking about it, and he knows he can't beat Apollo Creed. The guy's the heavyweight champion of the world. He's, he's just too good. He says, who am I kidding? 
I'm not even the same guy's league. And, and I just love Adrian's response to that. She says, well, what are we going to do? As if they were in this together. And he says, you know, it, it doesn't really matter if I lose the fight. All I want to do is go the distance. He says, no one's ever gone the distance with Creed, meaning what, lasting to the end of the, of the fight. He wanted to give it all and be standing at the end of the match. And when the bell rang, win or lose, he would still be standing. Um, it, it might just be me, but that's a powerful image. Rocky was a, a poor fighter who got the chance of his lifetime, and he made the most of it through using his heart to build his body. And I think that might be where Paul is getting at here in this passage. Remember um, what we said last week about the power of the gospel. It's the power to mature. It's the power to transform your life. Repeatedly in the Old Testament and the New Testament, throughout the history of the world, God has chosen to use the outcasts, the poor, the marginalized, the people who never should have had a chance, never should have had a shot, and put them in a position of influence and ask them, what are you going to do with this opportunity? You're going to train hard. You're going to go the distance. Paul says, run in such a way that you might win it. For Rocky, he was realizing that winning didn't necessarily need to look like his own victory. It needed to look like him remaining standing at the end of the fight of his life. Every other year, uh, Corinth, um, their neighbor, uh, hosted the, played host to the Ismidian Games. I might be pronouncing that wrong. Uh, it's a great contest of ability that was second only to the Olympiad. The Games held athletic competition, but there were also those who were talented in music and drama and rhetoric who could also showcase their own talent. Like the Olympics today, this became this major cultural event, and it was a tourist attraction. And he's saying, you all don't have to look far to see people who will go um, to whatever length possible to win their prize. But what are you competing for? A a wreath made of plants that will shortly fade away and disintegrate? Or, or maybe you're fighting for, um, for numbers. Maybe, maybe you're fighting for the Hall of Fame. But, but still, how long do you think that will last? Um, once you've set the bar, it's just going to give somebody else something to aim for. Think about this. Babe Ruth hits 59 home runs in the 1921 season and then 60 home runs in the 1927 season. That record stands until 1961 when Roger Maris comes along and hits 61. And then it gets complicated. That record stood until 1998 when Mark McGuire hit 70, and then that tops out with right now the record is at 73 uh, in 2001 with Barry Bonds. Um, again, controversial, don't need to get into that. But all goes to show the, 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 the perishability of these numbers, of these wreaths, um, how long is it going to take for these numbers to get broken? My hopes are for Chris Davis, but that's neither here nor there. Um, these wreaths are perishable. Remember the context of these remarks. This is still a part of Paul's discussion regarding meat sacrificed to idols. He advises the church not to let this liberty of yours become a stumbling block for the weak. And he says, hey, I'll never eat meat again if it would mean the advance of the gospel. That's how high the stakes of the game are. Repeatedly, Paul is 
advocating for a life that will pour itself sacrificially out for the sake of the gospel, even if that means abstaining from certain kind of foods in certain company, or if, even if it means him choosing to not accept payment for his work as an apostle. There might be big decisions, small decisions, but regardless, it takes maturity to discern how best to live out the gospel in your own context. Many have interpreted this passage in Paul as a call at a, a disciplined Christian life, and it could well be read like that, but not without remembering the point that Paul has given us. And just before um, this passage in verse 23, he says it, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I might share in its blessings. Our mission continues to be the advancement of the gospel. Paul says that we should run in such a way as to win it. Our win, therefore, is an effective witness. So yes, it begins with an individual. How can we be effective witnesses to our neighbors? How can our families be an effective witness to others? How can our church or our house church be an effective witness to other groups of people? How can we be a people who fight for imperishable wreaths that will come out of the advancement of the gospel and build for God's kingdom? Boxers, um, today they use uh, hand wraps uh, underneath their gloves, and the idea is that you wrap your hands so tightly um, so as not to injure your hand during a fight. Even if you're wearing the gloves, you run the risk of shattering the bones in your hand. So you want to make sure that the gloves are wrapped tightly. I realize this is a crude analogy, but Paul brings up boxing, so I thought it was a neat concept. The wrap is for the fighter, and the glove is for the opponent. And the neat thing is, it's all part of that same operation. The wrap allows the fighter to stay in the game longer. In the same way, there are things that we can do to strengthen our own faith for the benefit of the gospel, for the, the benefit of an effective witness. That's what I'd like us to spend the rest of our time thinking about this morning. As with physical exercise, we should be designing our spiritual workout routines around particular needs. It might be foolish of us to start declaring that everybody's needs, everybody needs to spend exactly 20 minutes of quiet time starting at 6 a.m. every day. Do I think that would be helpful? Sure. Does it need to look like that? No, not necessarily. I think that when it comes to discipleship, there's, there is margin for personality, for life stage, for, voca- for vocation, and a whole host of other factors. The truth is that 6 a.m. is going to look a lot differently for a parent of a two-year-old than it would be for somebody who's in retirement. It's perfectly understandable that program of spiritual formation would be custom fit for your life. However, don't for an instant think that being intentional about discipleship and spiritual formation won't cost you something. Fitting with Paul's analogy of an athlete who exercises self-control, spiritual formation will require us to be disciplined about what we are and what we are not spending our time with. As with any other form of discipline, it will require tough choices. In general, as a pastor, I'd recommend that each of us spend time alone with God daily, time in corporate worship weekly, time in a small group regularly, and time um, in service intentionally. 
while I'll recognize that that will probably look different to each person here, I would still stick with those basic tenets as kind of a starting point. And if you would like to learn something about that, I mean, I offer myself as a help for that. I offer myself as a guide. Let's sit down. Let's talk about your own spiritual formation, your own spiritual guidance. Let's prepare to do the work. So rather than design your particular regiment, I thought it might be cool if we instead um, kind of walked around the metaphorical gym and looked at at least five different things that will help or could help grow your faith. Right now, the elders are reading through a book called Deep and Wide by Ann B. Stanley. In the book, Stanley identifies five categories that he calls faith catalysts. The term catalyst is, I believe, a chemistry term. Um, but we're using it here to mean that there are certain things which tend to grow our faith. Um, the list, this list isn't necessarily exhaustive, but it is representative of the Christian experience as it has been understood over the past 2,000 years. There's something about these five things that can help us move in the right direction. And by the way, I'm stealing this from Andy Stanley, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to manipulate uh, this list to fit the needs of uh, well, the sermon. But the first thing he talks about is practical teaching. Um, so let's keep with Paul's sports analogy, and we're going to say that we're going to go on our tour of our discipleship gym. Bear with me, by the way. I am clearly not the world's foremost authority on physical fitness. Um, if you're anything like me, though, the first thing you might think about is like, I'm going to start working out. The first thing that you might think of is, I want to go check out the weight set. I want to see the bench press. I want to see the barbells. I want to see the things that are going to help me you know, pump iron and build muscle. The first thing first faith catalyst that we talk about is what Andy Stanley calls uh, practical teaching. The truth is that for many of us, the first time that we encountered the gospel in a meaningful way was during the sermon at a church. Maybe that was the case for you, maybe not. But if you listen to various faith testimonies, it's clear that preaching and teaching can have a powerful influence over our faith. Maybe you've never cracked a Bible. Maybe you've never quite understood what prayer is. Maybe you've never been to a small group. Um, but then one day you're invited to church with a friend and you hear this word spoken by somebody who helps you see that a 2,000-year-old collection of writings can actually be revolutionary to your own life and to the world in which you live. Right now, The Edge is studying the Sermon on the Mount, the middle school group which Jason likes to call Jesus' stump speech. It's a clear presentation where Jesus, makes, uh, where Jesus begins to announce what his kingdom is all about. And I love how it begins. He, he simply begins by, by giving them announcements. He says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Think about those phrases. The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the ones who hunger and thirst for a world that seems devoid of righteousness. He's hitting them right where they live, and he's letting them know that they too have a seat at God's table. I was in seventh grade when I first heard teaching like that. I didn't know the preacher. And even though I was a part of that church for years to come, I actually, the truth is, I never actually got a chance to ever meet him properly. But I believe that the Holy Spirit was working through him to get to me. 
It was a powerful catalyst that started something in me. And then years later, when I realized that, that something I, I, um, I had an awful lot of, um, one of the things that we can do when we're thinking about our own spiritual discipleship model or program or whatever, um, is think about what is it that I have a lot of and what is it that I can take advantage of. And I had a lot of drive time. And what I did was I chose to spend that time listening to sermons, listening to podcasts, lectures, books on tape, anything that would help train me towards a deeper relationship with the Lord and perhaps build skills for ministry. Sermons are great because they can challenge us towards holy living. Lectures and books are great because they can help us gain knowledge and put that knowledge in place in our life. But there is a sense in which the sermon is a bit like that weight set. Um, something that we naturally gravitate towards. That's going to be the cool thing. But it isn't necessarily a long-term discipline for spiritual formation. And that's where Stanley gets into the number two thing he calls spiritual disciplines. If practical teaching is like that weight room, think of spiritual disciplines as a treadmill. Spiritual disciplines such as fasting, prayer, scripture reading, worship, um, and more are focused on more like small decisions. Small decisions that we make repeatedly throughout the week. Um, Any guitarist in the room uh, might be familiar with the the guitar work of a guy named Steve Vai. Steve Vai is one of the most technically proficient guitarists that the rock music ever saw. And um, listen to how he explains his practice schedule. He says, I used to divide my day into 12 hours. The first nine days were divided into three equal sections, For the first hour, I would do a series of exercise and develop my fingering. Then I would go through all the scales and modes, and I would write synthetic scales and learn them. And then when I would harmonize those and then break the chords down, at the end of it, I would just play. Now, clearly, that's some dedication and some serious time commitment for 12 hours a day. But but consider what he did. He took a lot of small choices and used them to help build a skill set that he could use. Everything from proper fingering exercises to scales helps a musician to develop what's commonly called chops. Essentially, chops are about building the muscles that are going to help you do the thing that you're called to do and play your instrument. Vi says, chops aren't everything, but they are very important to a musician because if you can use them maturely and control them, they will give you authority. They will be able to give you more choices for when you'd like to play the guitar for a performance. If you've ever been to Camden Yards over the past few years um, and Matt Wieters gets a guy out on second base, you, the place just lights up and the whole place gets crazy and there's this screen on the Jumbotron that says, you know, you don't run on Wieters. The man has this vicious throw to second and you can bet it's because he practiced that throw over and over and over again and worked out those muscles that would help him to be that effective. The book of James says this. He says, My brothers and sisters, whatever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's pretty bold words for James. Consider it nothing but joy. James, you don't know the kind of day I've had. You don't know the sort of people that I have to deal with. You're right, he might say, I I don't. 
but I do know that you run a much higher chance of keeping perspective when you've put in the time for that personal devotion, when you've had that quiet time intentionally placed in your life, when I've cleared my calendar to pray, when I've sat in a chair and I've done personal business with God. Uh, for me, personally, I've, I've really come to appreciate ever since I've been in uh, full-time ministry, um, the outside. There's something about the outside that um, spending time out there is really important for me to do work in here. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that if, if you were to be intentional about putting it on your calendar, maybe even asking your family to help you make sure that you get this time in, hold each other accountable, we stand a better chance of getting off that throat a second. The third thing Stanley mentions is relationship and community. So you get off the treadmill and you walk around. And you notice that this gym has a basketball court. Basketball is a cool game because not only is it an incredible exercise, it's, it's something that you can play on your own, you can play it one-on-one, or you can play it with a team. So the thing is that our dis- discipline seems to enter a whole new category when we in, uh, in, incorporate others who are on similar journeys. This past week, I had the opportunity to have uh, coffee with a local Methodist minister. He's this great guy um, who I met through school. I met a great guy at school. And it turns out that, that he's just starting out. He, he's licensed, but he's not ordained, just like me. And we end up having this hour-and-a-half-long conversation at Atwaters about ministry and about discipleship and worship styles and about how each day God places these new challenges and new opportunities in our lives to wrestle with. We're sitting there, and, and we're talking um, to each other. And it's, it's so funny because there are things about our journeys that are definitely like unique to, to our own situation. Um, I'm not really familiar with the comings and goings of a Methodist congregation, and it's not like I can sit there and go, well, you know, we're a non-denominational church who's trying to start um, a partnership. We've been doing a partnership with an Episcopal church, um, and we're kind of two congregations, but we're one church, and we don't want to step on each other's toes, but we also want to make sure that we're respecting each other's boundaries, but also making sure that we're one, but also different. You know what I'm getting at? No, I, I don't. <laughs> it's not like he's, like he, 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 he's thinking that. Um, he's not going to say, well, been there. Um, but on the other hand, maybe he has. Sure, we may not even completely understand each other's church environments, but we know enough. We know enough to be empathetic. So, so if I can sit down with somebody one-on-one and I can draw on what common experiences we do have enough to answer, to not, to enough to ask the question. The question is huge. The questions that will let me learn more about them. See, if we're able to have that conversation, we stand a good chance of developing the kind of relationship that will build into each other's lives. Are we being intentional about that? This is why Small groups are so important. We call them house churches here, but regardless what you call them, they give you an opportunity to gather around common content. It's not a coincidence that Scripture plays a vital role in each of the first three faith catalysts that we discussed so far. See, when we're able to study Scripture with another human being, we're given this incredible opportunity to see how that Scripture speaks into another person and then to feel how they're experiencing it, to taste and see how the Lord is good because I can see it in my friend. And then we come 
to difficult things, things that deserve to be wrestled through. And we're able, because we've done that business, we've done the business of learning something from each other, we're better able to do that together, to wrestle through that difficult time together. So these three catalysts, uh, disciplines and relationships, uh, these are short of things that we can be um, intentional about doing. But the last two are perhaps a bit more responsive in nature. The fourth thing that Stanley mentions is personal ministry. Um, So let's say we leave the basketball court with our friend, and he says, uh, hey, hey, would you mind spotting me on the weight bench? Now, you're beat. You spent time on the weight bench already today, and you've spent 20 minutes on the treadmill, and then you went and played basketball. You're ready to go home. But you say, no. No, I need to take some time to help this guy. And the thing is, this isn't necessarily going to help you. You're responding to a need. You can say some encouraging words. You can make sure that he's using proper form. You can be there if something goes wrong. But, but ultimately, the thing that you're doing in that moment, it, it's not about you. It's about them. Um, ultimately, we're including personal ministry as a faith catalyst because we believe that ministering to others will ultimately, will inevitably help us to strengthen our own faith, but in the moment it might not feel that way. Stanley tells a story of a time when he and his family had uh, his mother over for dinner on a Saturday night, and she was getting ready to leave, and as she was getting ready to leave, she suffered this massive uh, seizure. And immediately they called the paramedics and they took her to the ER and they gave her tests and decided um, to keep her overnight for observation. So eventually Andy and his wife, they get home at 2 a.m. And he wasn't scheduled to preach the next day, the next morning. So so he and his wife just assumed that they were going to skip church. The thing was, they had three teenage kids who were all volunteering in their church's kids' ministry. He said that he and his wife were blown away when three showered and ready-to-go teenagers popped into their room to tell them that they had arranged rides and were heading out the door for church. He says in the book, Don't judge me too harshly for this, but all I could think to ask was, Really? Why? And their response was, Because we don't want to miss our groups. Ministry involvement is something that may seem like just such a small thing in the moment. Um, it could be everything from, from volunteering with kids to helping the, uh, to keep the sanctuary clean or um, being on the elder board or putting out donuts. Uh, but then down the road, maybe in a way that you least expect it, when you least expect it, you find that two things are possible. One, it meant more to them than you realized. And two, it meant more to you than you realized. One more comment on this. When we serve outside these walls, it's just as much a ministry. Every day I'm touched by the heart of the men and women of this church who have a heart, who have a passion for the world in which they live. You all volunteer your time and you pour yourself out selflessly and you feel the pain of those who are suffering. And that doesn't go unnoticed. That sort of personal ministry might not be about you in the moment, but it will absolutely change us. It will absolutely advance the gospel. It'll be an effective witness to a watching world. The fifth thing that Stanley talks about is pivotal circumstances. Because even the best athletes, they get injured. 
One day they're playing the game just like they've always done, and then out of nowhere they break a bone. They pull a muscle. And suddenly they realize how frail this body of theirs actually is, and they have to adapt. They have to account for it in their exercise. They can't ignore it. Sometimes all they need to solve um, the problem is time, but, but often it's more serious than that. Maybe they need a professional to look at it. Maybe they need to take it easy in other areas of life so that they can focus instead on the healing that needs to take place. And no one ever plans for things like divorce or addiction or severe health problems or the death of a loved one. But the truth is that these things can have a powerful influence over our uh, spiritual formation Sure, there are things that we can do to help build our strength so that when the unexpected happens, we're better off. But honestly, there are just things that are in this world that are going to rock your world, no matter how mature you may feel. But we can learn from it. We can lean into our faith. We can lean into our faith community. We can lean into our families. And we can trust that even these pivotal circumstances, even these things which were beyond our control, even those, God is sovereign. And we can continue to live and fight another day. And of course, pivotal circumstances can be positive as well. They don't have to be something that's necessarily negative. Maybe it's the start of a new school. Maybe it's... um, any number of things that that could be a positive thing that is going to say, this is a new day. Um, But regardless, it's one of the things that we can do and notice that, wow, God put that in my life for a reason. How am I to learn from that, good or bad? So that's the gym. And you're probably sitting here thinking, well, I know of one or two other ones, other, other catalysts that I can think of. Maybe, absolutely. You know, this doesn't have to be exhaustive or anything like that. But the point is, we have a choice about being intentional about these things, about, about seeing about how we can clear our calendar. Have you ever thought about how powerful a tool, a calendar is, that you can actually say, for this 15 minutes every day, I'm going to leave my phone in another room, and I'm going to do business with God. For these 15 minutes, I'm going to read this scripture, or I'm going to you know, dedicate a small portion of my time to getting through a text. Maybe for you, it's um, saying, well, this church is going through 1 Corinthians. Maybe at least what I'm going to do one day a week is I'm going to sit down for 20 minutes, and I'm going to pray through the text for this Sunday's sermon. So I can prepare myself for when I come to worship and I'm ready to worship the God, I'm ready to study scripture because I've spent time with the text already and maybe that will help me um, just be that much better prepared. I don't know what it is for you, but I can tell you that I would be happy to have a conversation with you. Let's sit down, let's have that relationship and let's see what uh, the future can hold. Now pray for us. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this community who has been just incredible to, um, well, personally, to my own faith journey. Um, This community has changed my life, um, and I am most thankful uh, for what you've done and through them. I just pray that we can be intentional about the things that grow our faith. We can be intentional about listening 
um, to sermons and to read the right books, and we can be intentional about placing prayer in our lives. We can be intentional about those spiritual disciplines. We can be intentional about the relationships that we have with each other and actually going out of our way and sitting down and having the coffee, having the meeting, showing up for house church, pouring ourselves into others through our personal ministry, through saying that it needs to not be about me right now, but I need to pour myself out into that, that uh, the conform myself to the, to the crucified Christ and be um, that way for another human being. And I need to um, just give these circumstances to you, Lord, that when something happens that is beyond my control, that I've spent that time, I've had that prayer um, and even though it's rocking my world, Lord, I can trust that you are there and you are not silent and you are sovereign. Father, we lay all of this at the foot of your cross and in the hope of your resurrection. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.